All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 16. And then if you want to put a thumb over in Galatians chapter 5, we'll pick up there in Galatians chapter 5 as well. So this is our final week as we've been kind of walking through the the person of the Holy Spirit. Now I was going to do like an in-depth recap over every sermon we've talked about through this. And if I was just being honest with you, I don't feel like I have enough time to do that. So what I would say to that is, we've spent the last four weeks talking about the person of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, what he does, what he's about, what he's trying to do within us. If you are interested in that, you can download the Google Podcast app onto your phone. If you don't know how to do that, ask somebody. I'm sure they can teach you. You can look up First Baptist Portalis and go and listen to all of of those sermons if you want to update yourself. But so far, what we've talked about has been highly kind of conceptual. We've talked more about who the Spirit is and what he does Today we're going to get a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more practical into what the Spirit uh, does and and how do we give him control over all of that. So we're going to shift gears and get into the practical. And in all honesty, um, today's sermon is going to feel a little bit different. It's a little bit less like a sermon and a little bit more like a seminar. Uh, We're we're going to ask some questions and give some answers and bullet points. And so if you're a note taker, this is like your dream today. You get to take all the notes. It's going to be wonderful. If you're not a note taker, sit back, relax. You're just going to have a lot of words to look at on the screen as we kind of get going into this. But as we shift gears and talk about the practical, what we're really talking about is, is how do we give the Spirit control over our lives? Because I've learned as I've gotten older, life is continuously filled with highly complex and nuanced decisions. So if you've not been here before, or maybe you've been living under a rock for the last kind of six months, my wife and I have been going through this whole process called embryo adoption. And this is where uh, we've been matched with another couple that did in vitro fertilization, and they had leftover embryos, and so they've donated us four of those, the, the entirety of those leftover embryos, which is four, and so this coming Wednesday, we're going to do, do this transfer. We're really excited about that. And so, um, but, but part of this it details and has to, it demands a decision to make. The decision is, do we transfer one embryo or two embryos? And on the surface, it seems like a really simple question and a really simple answer. But as you dive into it, you start finding all of these really just big pros and cons to one or two or two or one. And which one do we do? And so, so there's the statistical probabilities to consider, and there's health and developmental considerations, and, you know, twin pregnancies are a little bit more dangerous than single birth, like, how does that going to pan out, and there's financial realities to doing two versus doing one, and having to do this process four times, or two times, or three, all of this stuff, and so for the last just six months, we have been talking about and praying through this decision over and over and over. And the Bible can give some great generalizations to helping us answer and find the answer to that question. But it's not like the Bible tells us one or two, right? And I imagine you have situations like that. Because while the Bible can give us the, the generic and general directions and guidelines, it doesn't always give us the specifics of the decisions we're trying to make in these highly complex situations that we're dealing with. So who do I marry? Do I take the job? Which church do I attend? Uh, are we moving or are we not moving? The, the Bible can give some great generalizations to those. It, it can tell you the type of person and tri- type of attributes you should look for in a marriage. But it's not going to tell you specifically who. And if you look to Genesis and you're like, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So Rachel's the one you've misinterpreted it. 
you got it wrong, I'm sorry. There's something more. It can tell us generally, but it can't tell us specifically. Or it, it can tell us uh, what kind of moral expectations we should have within a job. So if the job is like stealing money from people, maybe don't take that job. The Bible says so. But it's not going to come in and say specifically what. And it can tell you about what is orthodox and what is correct doctrine. And it's going to tell you that and define what is just downright heresy. But likeliness is the Bible is not going to say, and thou shalt go to First Baptist Portalis. There's something else. And what we need then is the Holy Spirit. This is what we're going to be talking about today. How do we begin to know and trust the Holy Spirit in helping us make those specific, complex, nuanced decisions that we face on day-to-day situations. So we're going to kick off in Acts chapter 16. Paul is in Acts 16. He's getting ready to go on his second missionary journey. There's been some conflict between him and his previous partner, Barnabas, and so now he's going to take Silas, and he's going to pick up Timothy, and he's going to start going location to location, planting churches, proclaiming Jesus. All of this stuff is is at play. So let me pick up right here, starting in verse 6. By the way, there's some complicated names, so if I pronounce them wrong, don't call me out on it. I'm going to pretend like I know what they mean, though, and how to pronounce them. Verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been for Uh, They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mesia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. In passing Mesia, they went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision uh, in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And after they had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, including that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So why do I read this passage? Because, you know, the, most people when they're reading the story of Acts, this is not the story they stop and like, that's a really good story. We should preach through that. Like, you just kind of read it, pass over it, move on to the next significant event. But this story kind of comes to us and it forces us to ask a lot of questions that I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure I can give you a great answer to 100%. And the main question is this. Twice in this story, the Spirit forbids them from traveling to two different locations. And so what's going on when the Spirit forbids their travel? And Luke just doesn't give us that answer. He doesn't come out and say, and behold, there was a great force field between the border of Asia and Macedonia, and Paul bounced off against the border and couldn't make He doesn't tell us that. He doesn't say that they were getting up, they were getting ready to cross over, and they got caught by Border Patrol, and Border Patrol was like, nope, you're not coming in this way. And they t- we don't know. How, how is the Holy Spirit forbidding them from going into this location or going into that location? And Luke just does not tell us. Maybe they woke up late, maybe they took a wrong turn. I don't know. Luke just says the Spirit forbade them from going to those locations. And I think if I was to, to be forced to give you an answer, I would give you some sort of assumed answer, and it would go something like this. Paul lived his life so attuned with the Holy Spirit that interactions with the Spirit were so normal that decisions he made in his everyday life were constantly influenced by the Holy Spirit. And before you say, yeah, Philip, that's great, but Paul was like on a whole other level of Christian and we're not If you look at Paul's letters, which we're about to do in Galatians 5, especially Galatians 5, where he's writing this letter as he's making this missionary journey, we believe, you'll find that Paul expects that this would be the norm not only for him, 
but for every single person that claims the name of Jesus, that we would all have this sort of attunement to the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to see specifically, no, God's saying no to this and yes to this, even if it doesn't totally make sense to us. So with that in mind, this idea that Paul's been forbidden to go to these two places and Luke really never tells us how, go to Galatians chapter 5. Let me again set up a little bit of context for you, and then we'll jump into this passage, talk through it a little bit, and get into the seminar portion of this sermon. So Galatians 5 is, is arguably one of the, if not the very first letter written by Paul. Some people differentiate it's either this one or 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I tend to think it's this one, but it bounces back and forth depending on who you ask. Uh, so this is one of the first letters that Paul ever writes. Uh, and he's addressing the problem that has just happened back in Acts chapter 15. So in Acts 15, we get this story of these Jewish men that were going throughout these church plants of new Christian startups in Gentile cities. And they were explaining to the Gentiles, hey, if you really want to be saved, you have to become Torah observant. You need to follow all the Torah laws. You need to start eating kosher foods. You need to observe Sabbath. All of these things come into play, and so even if you are as Roman as Roman gets, you've got to start doing this. And this creates some big controversy because there was just some things in there that not everyone wanted to do. And so all this controversy comes to a point. They all come back to, to Jerusalem in Acts 15. Paul and the other apostles, they have this big meeting together. They make a determining decider about what is it supposed to look like when Gentiles begin following Jesus. But Galatians 5 is written to address this very same problem, that some of these men had come to Galatia. They'd start teaching this, this teaching, and Paul's writing this letter to recorrect things as they're kind of drifting off course because of this. And as Paul's giving it, he's talking about, so then what's the purpose of the Torah? That's the question they would ask. Okay, Paul, if you're saying that these people shouldn't obey the Torah, why do we even need this book anymore? And Paul's going to give this very dense, detailed answer that he's then going to expound upon in the book of Romans. Um, and I'm just going to do complete injustice to it right now, to what his answer is. But essentially he says that the problem or, or the, the deal with the Torah, the good thing about the Torah is twofold. Number one, it kept Israel in line long enough to bring the Messiah out of that lineage, that, that even though they still rebelled, it was the thing that kind of kept them in the right direction somehow. And then number two, even though it did that, it still continually pointed out the inadequacies of the Jewish people, that over and over again it showed how they failed and how they had fallen apart and how they had missed it. And so this is what Paul's writing about in Galatians 3 and 4 and, and all of this stuff. And, and so he says that demanding that Gentiles become Torah observant is like acting as though Jesus didn't already fulfill the Torah and all the commands of the Torah. And it neglects the freedom that Jesus has offered to anyone who would believe in him. Which that leads to another rebuttal question from this Jewish party that they would say something along the lines of, okay, well, how are the Gentiles supposed to know what's right and what's wrong without the law of God? If they don't know the Torah, how can they know what's right and what's wrong, Paul? And this is what Paul gets into in chapter 5, and his answer is the Holy Spirit. They know what's right and wrong. Because the same Spirit of God that dwells within the Jewish people can now dwell within Gentiles and communicate to them what is right and what is wrong. This is exactly what Paul's saying, chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, 
walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These things are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, enviness, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And I'm warning you about these things, as I've warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, Paul expects right here in Galatians 5 that every single person who lives... In this relationship with God, the Father, through the forgiveness of God the Son, is then indwelt by God the Spirit, and that the Spirit is guiding them to know how they should live in what he calls in step with the Spirit. And Paul's utterly convinced that each and every Christ follower has the exact same access to the Spirit that he has, and even more importantly, the exact same access to the Spirit that Jesus had. It's not like Jesus got more of the Holy Spirit than what we get. Now, we all have the exact same access to the Spirit. Therefore, as a person cultivates this relationship and walks in step with the Spirit, they are going to look like, think like, act like, talk like totally different people than those who don't. And what we want to run up to Paul, at least what I want to run up to Paul and do, is I want to run up to him and say, Okay, Paul, that's wonderful and great, but how? How do I walk with the Spirit? How do I keep in step with the Spirit? And we can attempt to formulate a list. And in fact, we will do that today. I'm going to try to, at the end of the service, kind of give you a list of things that I think helps to keep in step with the Spirit. But without some clear understanding as to God's intention with indwelling within us, we will end up with just another to-do list of like, here are the things you do, and if you do this right, you'll be filled with the Spirit, and if you don't, you won't. And then we start doing it in our own power. And the second we start doing the to-do list in our own power, we've, we've already failed. We've missed it. We've, we've messed it up. So we have to start right here. We have to start with this understanding that says keeping in step with the Spirit is far more about cultivating a daily relationship with Him than following a to-do list and hoping things pan out. This is why in Galatians 5, Paul seems far more interested in, in giving the indicators and not the instructions of. So he's going to say, hey, keep in step with the Spirit. And then rather than giving us instructions for how do we keep in step with the Spirit, he's just going to draw a line and say, here are the indicators. If you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you're going to have a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if you're not keeping in step with the Spirit, then you're going to have this life filled with strife and bitter and outbursts of rage and anger and all of these other things that he lists, strife, jealousy, division. So we can confidently say, that while keeping in step with the Spirit is not a formal to-do list, there are clear indicators that reveal when someone is or is not keeping in step with the Spirit. 
So, if all of this is about relationship, and I know I've just kind of poured all of this out, and I wanted to start here so that we can build into the rest of this stuff. If all of this is about relationship more than a to-do list, how do we make sense of it all, and how do we put it into practice with the Spirit? And here's the main point that we're going to get to today. It's this. We walk in the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit by living in relationship with God. We walk in the Spirit by living in relationship with Him. And every good relationship demands conversation. You cannot foster a strong relationship without conversation. There are some great authors that I love to read. Uh, I think they have some wonderful things to say. Do I have a relationship with them? No, because I don't get to talk with them, right? A good relationship demands conversation. And so I know we're kind of wading this uncharted territories here, And the big question is, okay, if we need to conversate with God, how do I know it's God talking to me and it's God saying, hey, you don't need to go to Asia? How do we know it's the Spirit forbidding that and not Satan or that we had too much blue cheese on the salad last night? How do we know these things? So I'm going to shift gears and we're just going to talk about this. So again, just got to sit back, relax. We're going to do some seminary type stuff, not seminary, like seminary, a word, like seminar-ish, I don't know. Um, And we're going to talk about this. So if the relationship with God is built upon communication with God, what are ways that God is going to seek to communicate with us? I'm going to hit these very rapid fire. So if you're a note taker, get ready to write really fast. If you're not, just soak it in and we'll go. Ten ten things, I think, about the way the Spirit communicates with us. And I'll put all of them up there. You can read through it. We're going to go down this list one by one by one really quickly. Number one is is Scripture. The, The very first way, and this is number one always, that God is going to communicate with us is through His Word. It is the tone setter for us. It explains who God is, who man is, what God's intention for this world is, where we've been, where we're going, what God wants to do with us in the meantime. And it's, you've got to remember, the Bible is an ancient text that demands contextualization and meditation. It demands a lifetime of study, a teachable heart and mind that can be challenged and corrected. Uh, but I start here because if you miss this, you cannot and will not have com- uh, effective communication with the Holy Spirit. We have to start with God's word. Number two is through Jesus, which we know about Jesus how. Through God's word. It's kind of tied one in the same. But I mentioned Jesus specifically because John's going to come in and say that Jesus is the word of God become flesh and dwelling among man. So, so who Jesus was, the attributes he portrayed, the things he taught, the things he did, are directly correlated with the person of God. That Jesus is God the Father's representation on earth. So what he teaches, what he believes, what he acts. It is all a direct relationship with God and to God. So we can have God communicate with us through Jesus. Number three is creation. Romans 1.20 tells us that God's invisible attributes, that is his divine power, is clearly on display in everything he's made. And so I don't mean to sound like hippie Pastor Philip, but like there's something to say about being able to go out and see like a portalis sunset and be like, dude, that is beautiful, and have this realization that that didn't just happen by chance. There is a creator that made it, an artist that created this, and I can be drawn to him through that creation, that God is declaring his power as we look at what he has made. Number four is intuition, 
And I would say with, with intuition, this is probably the way for most of you outside of Scripture that the Spirit is going to be communicating and talking through things. Uh, the, the heart strings within you, the, that peace, that, that gut feeling, you know, that person comes to mind as you're praying that morning and you get this kind of inkling, I, sh- I should call them. Or a particular Bible verse that you've stored in your heart kind of bubbles up during a conversation at work and you get this kind of inner voice that says, I should tell them that. Like, oh, they don't believe in the Bible. Oh, I should tell them anyways. Or your stomach turns over when you're thinking about that decision that really otherwise has no immoral parts to it, but there's just something in you that says, I, I have to say no. And I don't really know why, but I have to say no. That, that's the spirit, pulling and using our intuitions to communicate decisions that we should make. Number five is listening prayer. And I would just say with this one, like how often uh, when you're praying, is your prayers just like machine gun rapid fire requests to God? God, do this, do this, fix this. I need to deal with this. Help me with this. I need. And then like you usually pray for about three minutes, get all those shut off, and you're like, I don't know what to talk about anymore. So I'll check back in with you this afternoon when I got another request, God. How often is your prayer that versus how often do you just kind of sit down? Second uh, Samuel seven eight says that David just sits before God. I mean, when's the last time you just kind of sat down before God and said, God, I'm here, you're here, I'm listening. Just taking some time out of your day-to-day life to listen to what God has to say to you. The practice of just being with God. Number six is what I'm calling just circumstances. I might even add to this the idea of convergence. That you, you encounter that one person over and over again, and you're like, is God trying to tell me something that I need to go share the gospel with them? You know, I, I just keep running into them. What's, what's happening here? Or uh, it seems like the 37 people you've encountered this week have told you the same thing, um, that, that the Bible story and the sermon and your own, it's all lining up. That's probably God using circumstances to try to communicate to you something. And now we're going to wade into the things that are maybe a little bit more controversial, Uh, And I would just say to those things, relax, it's okay, it's in Scripture. We're going to talk about them because it's in Scripture, because Scripture is worth talking about. So uh, number seven is prophecy. And prophecy is not this like mystical, like I have a TV screen that tells me what the future is going to be. So First Baptist Church, here's the future of our church because I'm a prophet. And it's biblically, that's not what prophecy is about. It's about communicating uh, on behalf of God to someone else. So it is when God, the, the Spirit, pulls on your intuition and says, you need to call that person. And you call them, and the Spirit of God says, you need to remind them about the verse in Galatians 5.1 where it says, it's for freedom's sake we've been set free. And you tell them that. And, and maybe nothing really happens. Maybe you don't know. And maybe they're like, that's exactly what I needed. This is what the Bible is portraying as prophecy. Just, hey, you, sh- you should tell them. You should give them a word of encouragement. You should call them out and help them through this. This is what the Spirit does with us as we communicate to each other. Number eight is dreams and visions. And I know that that one seems really weird to us. And what I would say to that is this is just a simple fact that God has access to your mind at all times. So even when you're sleeping, he can use things to to communicate with you. I'm not saying every single dream you have is from God. I've had some really weird dreams that I'm like, I don't know what that one was, but that's not from God, right? But, but there are times that God can communicate and use that avenue to, to tell you something about life or about you. And he's usually going to back that up through some other avenue, through Scripture, always lining up with Scripture. Uh, number nine is angels. And when I say angels, I don't mean like a six-foot supermodel with long, flowing blonde hair and really cool wings. 
that's kind of the way we paint them now, but that's not the biblical understanding of angels. In fact, if you look up, uh, you can even Google this, uh, biblically accurate angels, you will understand why the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, because they are scary looking, like eyeballs all over the place. Yes, I can see why the shepherds look into heaven and they're terrified. Um, but that even being said, there are times like Hebrews 13.10 uh, explains that sometimes we're entertaining angels without even knowing it, that angels seem to have taken on some sort of human form and, and are communicating to us. And with all that, I would just say the Greek word for angel is the word angelos, and, and really the better translation for it is just the word messenger. It's not an innately spiritual word. It's a very carnal word in that when a king sends a message, the person carrying the message is an angel, so to speak. He is the messenger, so that God can send messengers to, to carry messages that way. Uh, or number 10, just audible voice that God can speak, the voice that seems to come out of nowhere, out of heaven, uh, from some inanimate object like Moses in the burning bush. And I mention all of this just to say, God has lots of ways that he can communicate with you. And God desires, as you live in relationship with him, to do that very thing, to communicate and talk with you. Now, a lot of times what I've found is uh, that, that people will tell me, well, if God would just use, you know, one of these bigger ones, like at the end, then I would know it's real and true and I would follow. If God would just give me a vision, then I wouldn't have to worry about this anymore and I would follow him. If God would just send an angel to talk to me, then I can trust him. And let me just take a few minutes and debunk that myth for you really quickly. Because if you go through scripture, you'll find that that's just simply not the case. So in John chapter 12, verses 28 and 30 through 34, there's this conversation that Jesus is having as he's teaching. Um, and so he's publicly announcing his crucifixion. And he says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that's why I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came down from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. This is the literal, audible voice of God the Father pouring out of heaven. And the very next line in the text is, the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. They just totally missed it. They hear the audible voice of God and they're like, that sounds like thunder to me. And then other ones will say, well, an angel has spoken to them. And so I would just say, if you're like, if God would just speak from heaven, then I would get it. Maybe not. Maybe you'd be like, ah, I think that was thunder, and you would just move on with your life. And you're like, well, well, maybe if it was just an angel that would appear to me. And then in Luke 1, 18, it's the story of the angel appearing to Zechariah and telling them that him and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And he explains all of this stuff. This is the angel Gabriel. Explains all of this stuff and says, this is how it's going to happen. And you know what Zechariah's first words in response are? That don't make no sense, angel. How can this be? That's, that's his question. How can this be? I, I, I cannot ration this out in my mind. So it seems like even when an angel of God themselves come to you, there's this tendency in our own flesh to say, it's pretty cool that you came to me this way, God, but I don't believe it, right? So, so that's not a great way. Or, or you would say, well, if I could just have a vision from God, and you get to Acts chapter 10, and this is the vision of God bringing the sheep down from heaven with all the unclean animals, and he's telling Peter, take this and eat, and Peter says no. And God has to give Peter, number one, he has to give Peter this vision three times, and if you follow this story in verse 17, as God pulls the blanket back up into heaven, the, the Bible says, while Peter was deeply perplexed about the visions that he might have seen. So Peter gets the vision and it still doesn't make any sense to him. So I say all that just to say very clearly, hey, 
even when God uses these avenues of communication, understanding in our little finite minds aren't always there. We, we still miss it. And I would just say, we as humans today still have that capability of missing it. And it comes down to, well, well why isn't God easier to understand? Why isn't he clearer in what he communicates? And I would just say that God is not looking for a manager-employee relationship. God's not interested in waking up in the morning with you and saying, okay, let's sit down over breakfast. Here's your to-do list for the day. Report back to me this afternoon, and we'll see how it all goes, and we'll see if I... That's not the relationship God's looking for. His desire is intimacy. And at the heart of every intimate relationship is intimate conversation. You guys may, may not know this, but I'll just let you know. I love my wife so much. She is like my favorite person in the world and always will be my absolute favorite person in the world. And there are so many things I love doing with her. I love going to the gym and working out with her. And then she just like puts me to shame because she's lifting more than I am. I'm like, this is why? What happened here? Um, I love doing that. Uh, kids, you may want to cover your ears for this one. Um, I love kissing her. I know, like, ooh, gross, right? I love it, man. She's my wife, and I get to do that any time. But do you guys know what the favorite parts of my relationship with Haley is? It's the times I make her cry laughing so hard because we're having a conversation. It's the times we're laying in bed and we're talking about what the future is going to look like and who are we and what's God calling us to. It's the long car rides where I find out that growing up she was on a, a trick performance basketball dribbling team. You'll have to ask her about that one. Like These are the things that I, I cherish in my relationship. And if I could point back over the last eight years to the most significant times we've shared together, it is almost always going to be a conversation. It's going to be communication from her to me and from me to her. And God is looking for the same thing from us. His desire is communication. And he may speak to you in a myriad of ways. And so you're saying, well, Philip, how do I know if it's God speaking or something that I ate the night before? And I would just give you a quick little litmus test for that, two, two questions. Number one, does it line up with Scripture? And number two, does it sound like Jesus? Does the thing that your heartstrings pull in towards feel like that God's calling you to do? Does it line up with Scripture? And does it sound like Jesus? Because if there's this little heartstring in you that says, you know, I really, I could cheat on my taxes this year. No one would even know. And the government already has enough money. They're robbing us all blind anyways, so I can justify it. That's not in Scripture, and that does not sound like Jesus. Therefore, that is not from God. Does that make sense? But if it is, you should pay for that person's meal. You should give that person a call. What does that line up with Scripture? There's no telephones in Scripture, but there is definitely this God uses us to communicate to other people on behalf of him. That's scriptural, all the way from the prophets onwards to now. And then number two, does it sound like Jesus? Well, Jesus communicated on behalf of God to us, so the answer to both of those questions is yes. And you might be saying, well, Philip, that, that sounds like pretty risky because, like, what if I get it wrong? What if I jump in and I'm wrong about this? And I would just say, Soren Kierkegaard, who's a famous philosopher and theologian, one of his famous quotes is, without risk, faith is impossible. You know, you get that intuition feeling to pay for that person's meal or to tell that person something that came to mind when you thought of them, to take that job, and you're like, ah, oh, it just seems so risky to me. And I would just say, run the quick litmus test. Does it line up with Scripture? Does it sound like Jesus? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then jump for it and do it. Two more quick things. So why don't we? I'm going to hit these really, really fast. What are the obstacles? Number one, 
first obstacle is that we have a dysfunctional view of God. We just don't understand who he is. We think God's perpetually mad at us, that he's the angry guy in heaven waiting to smite us the second we make a decision. That will always prohibit you from understanding what the Spirit's trying to do in your life. Number two, we get too busy, that we're just constantly working. We constantly have a thousand things distracting us from what God's trying to do. Number three, we don't even ask God. We never take any time out of our day to say, God, are you talking to me? What are you saying? Number four, we just don't obey so that even when God does say, we totally miss it. So how do we grow in hearing God's voice? And this is the final thing. Number one, we invite God in. I told you this was going to be just rapid-fire seminar-type information. Number one, we invite God in. We just have a simple time that we come to God in the morning, whenever, God, I'm here, you're here. There's a thousand things to do today, but would you just come be with me? Let me hear from you. Take, make this a habit. Invite God into your everyday self. Number two, submerse yourself in Scripture. And I don't say that to be like, a really good Christian reads his Bible every day. And if you're not reading your Bible every day, you're not a really good Christian. If we're reading our Bibles because we think that's what's going to give us heaven brownie points, we've missed that too. That the Bible is this way of saying, God, I want to live in this intimate relationship with you. So I want to learn about you. And so I'm just going to read this so that I can know you better. Submerse yourself in scripture. Number three is pay attention. This is directly into that we just are too busy. Start learning to pay attention to what God's doing around you. Have a timer set out on your phone where every hour, every two hours, that you just kind of stop, take a deep breath, and say, okay, God, I've been really busy today, but you're here, I'm here. What are you trying to communicate with me on your drive to work? Uh, whatever it may be, God, I just need to spend a little bit of time with you. And, and you just pay attention. And then number four is we ask and obey. Whether that's a big thing or a small thing, and I would just say God's going to always start with small things biblical to the man with a few talents that went and buried him. He doesn't give anything in return. So that, that God is going to give you small things to do. And when you're faithful with those small things, God can build from there. But ask, and then when God communicates, follow in obedience. So we jump back into Acts 16, where Paul has been forbidden to go to Asia and Myasia and, and or Bithynia, and he's trying to figure out well, why, what happens, how did this go? And I think the only answer we can have is that Paul had cultivated an intimate relationship with God. And he does it by living life in this way. And this is not some sort of spiritual life hack. You cannot formulate statistical relationships. You, you can't look it up and be like, statistically on average, how often does a good relationship have the words, I love you, said seven times? Let me call my wife. Excuse me. Hey, um, I love you. How many times have I told you that today? Four? Okay, i got to get three more in by this afternoon. So I'll call you back in an hour, right? Like, that's not how that works. You can't just make a relationship statistical. There has to be something more involved in it than just that. So this is ways you can grow in hearing the Spirit. Invite God, submerge yourself in Scripture, pay attention, ask, obey. And all of this is just really another way of saying this is how you cultivate a more intimate relationship with the Spirit, which is just another way of saying keep in step with the Spirit because life is filled with complex decisions. So this coming Wednesday, Haley and I are going to go in for our embryo transfer. We've decided that we're going to be transferring two embryos at once. We don't make that decision lightly, and it's not something that we came to because we just put two numbers in a hat and drew one out of those two. You know, I didn't like praying, like, okay, God, the next number I see, that's how many Four. I don't want to do four. Let me rethink about that one. You know, that's not how I did that. Instead, what happened is Haley and I knew 
that this decision was coming down the road, and we've spent months praying and talking about it. We've had multiple people come to us and say things like, can we pray for twins? And our first gut response has always been like, no. I do not want two children at once. Like, that sounds just heavily chaotic. And yet, like, how, like 16 people have been asking us this from my family, your family, just all over the place. Can we pray for twins? And all of a sudden, it's just like that little, I'm trying to get your attention here, Philip. There's something I'm trying to tell you. And all of a sudden, it becomes the thing that I'm most opposed to. Maybe God's telling me something here. And I don't know why that, that God settled on two with us. And I don't know what the end result of that too is going to be. But I know if God has told me this, which we really believe after praying he has, that we're going to make that decision in faith, whatever the risks involved are. And that God is faithful to bring that to fruition the way that he wants to bring that to fruition. The Christian life demands relationship, and we could not settle on that because the Bible does not say, thou shalt never transfer two embryos from yon other woman into thy womb. Like, we just had to make the decision, and God made that possible. Because here's the deal, and this is where we're going to close up today. God did not save us just so that we can go to heaven when we die. God saved us to begin living in an intimate relationship with him right here, right now. John 14, 12 is this really cool verse where, where Jesus just says, Very truly I say unto you, which when Jesus says, Very truly I say unto you, what he's saying is, This is true. What I'm about to say is real. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater than these because I am going to the Father. And we want to sit down and debate, like, what does it mean greater works? And how can we do greater works than Jesus himself? And the main point of that verse is not that, I would argue. The main point of that verse is that word, whoever. Whoever believes in me. In fact, it's a phrase that's come up in John multiple times before this. You guys know of any phrases in the book of John where it says, and whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life, right? John 3, 16. It's been a phrase over and over again. What Jesus is saying is that an intimate relationship with his spirit is not limited to elite individuals. It's not limited to seminary degrees. Hearing and obeying the voice of the spirit is not something for pastors and really pious men that live in monasteries. Who's it for? Whoever. Whoever would believe in Jesus. That means it's for you if you believe in Jesus. And it's for you if you believe in Jesus. It's for us if we believe in Jesus. You see, it's the same thing that Jesus came to die, not just to forgive us to our sins and restore us to God so that we can spend eternity in heaven, but to forgive us of our sins and restore us to God so that we can live right here, right now, as individuals and as First Baptist Church of Portales in relationship with the Holy Spirit. And maybe there's something that we've talked about today, you're like, that's the thing I need to work on. So we're just going to take a few moments before we remember that, how God's done this for us through his sacrifice. And maybe there's something you need to say, I just need to do a better job of that. I need to be more listening. I need to communicate with God better. I'm going to give you just a few minutes to do that. Maybe you've never had a relationship with God and you want to come do that right now this morning. I would love to talk with you more about what that means. And then we're going to remember it of what God has done through his sacrifice for us. Father God, we're grateful for your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray this very morning that we, we would just be attuned to what you're doing. Help us to understand your grace and goodness. And God, I pray right here, right now, that you would help make us a church that doesn't do this for the sake of spiritual life hacks and uh, fitting you into a box that we would take on this heart that says we want to be in constant communication with the almighty God who lives within us. 
And God, let that communication drive us to do things that you have called us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray.